Ah, hello, friend. I was wondering when you might stop by. Come, take a seat. Warm your hands by the fire. Welcome to Stories from the Hearth, the podcast for tall tales and fantastical fiction. Short stories the likes of which you might once have heard a bard tell to a group of villagers like you gathered around the fire. This is an experiment in independent storytelling, a safe and inclusive space for you to relax, dream, explore and challenge yourself. Join me, Cal Bannerman, on the last Sunday of every month around this campfire, roaring in a clearing in the woods beneath a star-speckled sky, and lose yourself in a genre-bending tale of history, romance, science fiction or fantasy. These are tales to transport you, doorways, into another world. Stories from the Hearth is ad-free and free to listen to. Its existence depends entirely on the financial and moral support of its listeners. To support the podcast and earn yourself exclusive perks such as early access, behind-the-scenes, bonus stories, shout-outs, live chats, signed copies of the stories, and more, join me on Patreon from as little as £2 or $3 by heading to patreon.com forward slash stories from the hearth podcast or by hitting the link in the description below. My warmest thanks to those of the novice narrator tier and higher who helped to make this community possible. Molly, Ruthie, Vivian, Nick, Sandy, Jane, Rob, Charlie and Jen. Thank you. Now, gather close for I've got a story to tell. This is episode 17, The Art of Floating. Tucker Hall, Jean Montesano, Brad Reinhardt, our Channel 5's news team. Here's the morning news at 9. Now, Tucker, you told me quite the story over breakfast, didn't you? The newscaster tucks a lock of dark hair behind an ear. She grins disbelievingly, her skin stretched tightly over lifted cheekbones. Quite the story. And do you remember what I said to you? Tucker laughs, his teeth gleaming radiant white and uniform as soldiers in a Botoxed mouth. He straightens his tie, smooths down the errant hair protruding from his eyebrow, and turns the motion into a brush of his perfectly coiffured hairdo. Jeannie, you are so funny sometimes. Viewers, when Jeannie got into the newsroom this morning, I told her about this next story, and she... He chuckles again. (laughs) Well, 
she said, Get out of here. Get out of here. Jeannie <laughs> repeats, her laugh hollow. I just never heard of something so crazy before. Or should I say, local? Below the desk, out of sight of their camera people and producers, Jeannie squeezes Tucker's thigh with a grip like a clam to a rock. Tucker's snicker turns into a delighted yelp. <laughs> well, go ahead, Tuck. Tell the good folks what's going on down in Argentina today. Tucker turns from his co-host back to the camera, the bags below his eyes only just visible beneath the heavy layers of makeup. In his early fifties, the anchor's good looks are beginning to give way, and he fears he doesn't have the charisma to cover them. His gaze is empty. This morning, Argentinian President Valentina Cordoba ordered the arming of police divisions in the South American nation's largest province, Santa Cruz. The move comes in the wake of a public outcry which has swept the world in the last 24 hours. With protests in every major city around the globe and calls from the UN General Council for President Cordoba to act swiftly and decisively, the rollout of armed police into Santa Cruz comes as no surprise. President Cordoba has issued a public call to arms for those living locally to the incident, with a not insubstantial bounty of 15 million Argentinian pesos placed on the head of the culprit. Okay, Tzak, interjects the grinning genie, whose gasps and raised eyebrows pepper the broadcast. But what is going on? Why the outrage? I mean, this is everywhere, right? Everyone's upset about this. Tucker nods. Just this morning, on the train here, a group of students blocked the aisle screaming. I mean, really screaming about the whole thing. What's happening? Is it war? Is it anti-war? More climate conspiracy nonsense? Wait, wait, wait. Let me guess. Jeannie plays her role as naive yet concerned American mom in perfect pitch. Tucker? Is it socialism, Tucker? Tell me it's not socialism, Tucker. She exudes fear directly down the lens of the camera. Below the desk, Tucker strokes Jeannie's nylons with a wandering finger. He shakes his head. Would that it were, but it's none of the above, Jeannie. The Chinese-Russian coalition continues its assault on the West. Forest vaccinations abound, oil prices rise, the liberals are in the White House, but would you believe that what's got the world up in arms is an old woman and a cave painting? A cave painting? Squeaks Jeannie. What even is that? Well, I'm glad you asked, Jeannie. Our South American correspondent, Brad Reinhardt, is outside the cave in question, Cueva de los Menos, as we speak. Brad, are you there? She woke with a jolt as her bus thumped over a pothole in the road. From through the open window above her head, she listened to the lows of cattle in the morning, demanding to be milked. She watched a handful of cowherds as they carried buckets of feed across the field, whilst others passed them in the opposite direction, their pails heavy with fresh, steaming milk. Adjusting her eyes to the dawn, the old lady noticed the emptiness of her bus. 
15 or more hours earlier, she'd climbed the steps of the 1972 Mercedes-Benz LO111 with its chrome grille still shining despite the decades, and taken her seat toward the rear. At the Buenos Aires bus depot, the stagecoach had been packed full of all manner of humans. Tramps, aristocrats, buskers, hustlers, hitchhikers with a little cash in pocket, businessmen, children, mothers and fathers. Now, however, though less than halfway through her journey, the vehicle interior was quiet. She counted the heads. Six passengers remained. A cowboy, or gaucho, in blue denim and a wide-brimmed hat. A mother and her three children, all well-dressed, with neat little frocks for the girls and a suit for the boy. And finally, a tourist, another foreigner. A young white boy, presumably from somewhere in the heights of the Northern Hemisphere. His red hair and translucent skin a dead giveaway. The old lady smiled. She, with her copper skin and dark features, could pass for a local, at least until she opened her mouth, whilst the boy stood out like a sore thumb. He noticed her watching him and turned his attention swiftly back to his smartphone. She smiled wider and twisted back round in her seat to face the road in front. Long and straight, the tarmac cut the unassuming countryside like an arrow of God, and on the faint horizon her eyes softened to see a lone condor circling, its wings silken black against the blue. The old lady reached down and retrieved a brown paper parcel, translucent with grease, from the pack she had tucked below the seat in front. She peeked in and felt her mouth water, then selected an empanada of spicy beans and pork before returning the pastries to her bag. When her hand re-emerged, she was clutching a dog-eared book, its spine broken in a hard white line about a quarter of the way in. As she took a small bite of her breakfast, she turned the book with a practiced thumb to the same page she'd studied every day for months now. The book was a tatty, ancient thing, with an ugly stock photo cover and a title plastered across the front in boring font. The page she opened to was a double-spread photograph, and though most of the images in the book had been reproduced in black and white, this particular plate section was alone printed in colour. The woman chewed on her empanada, satisfied by but no longer aware of its taste. Her attentions were instead invested in the double-page photo. With a short (gasps) chirp, she suddenly clamped the pastry between her gums and raised an oily-fingered, much-wrinkled hand into a beam of dusty light pouring in through the sunroof. The rays passed through her fingers to fall on the page, casting a shadow of a palm against the photo. She raised her hand a little higher, then a little more, until the shape of it on the page was as small as a tack, until it became indistinguishable from the dozens of other hands pictured there, also shadow-like, the silhouettes of three score or more human paws captured in hunter-gatherer spray paints against the cave wall. Shadows in the cave thought the woman. Palms, fingers, joints and wrists were outlined against the pictured rock face in red, yellow, white and black, with iron, kaolin, natural jadocyte and manganese oxide, fancy scientific names for pigments and dyes 
the humans living 7,000 years ago discovered in the earth. The photograph, like the lady's bus ticket, read Cueva de los Manos, the Cave of Hands, Perito Moreno, Santa Cruz Province, Argentina. The woman lowered her hand to the page, pressed it over the ancient cave art. Closing her eyes, she breathed deeply, willing her pounding heart to be still, to be patient. ¿Qué mierda está pasando? Barks a harried-looking man, his skin so battered by the sun it resembles the leather of his army-issue boots. He wears a sergeant's stripes on his sleeve and is directing his question toward a flock of confused-looking soldiers priming their assault rifles. No lo sé, sargento, replies the bravest and least baffled of the bunch. The sergeant repeats his question, gesturing angrily toward the caravan of villagers, cowherds, cholitas and vagrants converging on the soldier's location. As the civilians roll in, the dust of the plains swirls behind them, is caked to their faces and jackets, their watery eyes squinting against the harsh sun. They come in various states of dress and readiness, from wanderers in rags to farmers in workwear and backpackers in Levi jeans, some empty-handed, others armed with scythes, shotguns, knives and clubs. As they arrive at the army barricade surrounding the cave entrance, the travellers come to a dazed stop. Exhausted from their journey and suddenly finding that none in their ranks had considered what to do when finally they reached their destination. They had heard the call and answered without hesitation, their passion for cultural heritage stronger, evidently, than their impulse control. The sergeant strides across to the most hapless of his privates and grabs him by the shoulders, spinning him round to face the procession of civilians, and points with a fat, trigger-happy finger. No los dejes pasar, he croaks in the boy's face. Vamos! Then, under his breath, La puta presidenta, Armando Civiles, que sigue, maldita idiota. As Brad Reinhardt's cameraman lines him up, he makes sure to get the confused faces of these soldiers, the police, armed civilians, the cave entrance and Brad, all in one shot. Over Brad's earpiece comes the inane chatter of his Channel 5 colleagues. Cueva de los Manos, as we speak. Brad, are you there? Brad gives his cameraman the thumbs up, clears his throat, <clears throat> sniffs, and throws a smouldering look into the lens. Tanned, blue-eyed, blonde-haired, in his early thirties and trim, Brad likes to think that somewhere out there, a younger, even fitter, even blonder, and most certainly more buxom viewer will be watching. Dreaming of the day Brad Reinhardt sweeps her into his arms and carries her off into the sunset. His ears rise at the thought, his crotch bulges. Something about this job gets him off like nothing else. I'm here, Tucker, he says, his voice deep 
and masculine, a leg-quivering voice, he likes to think. Now, tell us, Brad, comes Tucker's effeminate response. Brad quashes a wince. What is this cave painting everyone's talking about? Good question, Tuck. As you can see, I'm here outside La Cueva de los Manos in Argentina, the Cave of Hands. Why is it called that? Well, God, did he sound good today. Turns out a pisco sour for breakfast has a charming effect on his vocal cords. Inside this seemingly innocuous cave is the source of the world's ire. Brad congratulates himself on his word choice. Innocuous and ire in the one sentence? Slow down, stud, he thinks. You'll pull a muscle. You see, inside this cave are a number of prehistoric paintings, some of which are 9,000 years old. Its most famous paintings, however, dating to around 5,000 BC, are a group of handprints overlapping each other. These are the hands of our ancestors, Tucker. Caveman and cavewoman living all that time ago put their hands to these walls. Brad mimics the movement with his free hand and left their outlines there by spraying paint through a tube. He tilts the mic toward his upheld hand to demonstrate. Like so. <laughs> oh, all right, drones Genie. Like you do in kindergarten. Brad struggles to conceal his grimace. Just like in kindergarten, Genie, spot on. Except this kindergarten art class took place thousands of years before even Jesus walked the earth. And now the kindergarten classroom is a National Historic Monument and a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's a cultural artifact of significant importance. Wow, comes Genie's reply. Brad thinks, not for the first time, that he is far too clever for this job. But then, it pays to be the clever one in a bundle of idiots. Might just move him up the ladder faster than his contemporaries. Briefly, he pictures himself in the anchor seat instead of Tucker Hall, with his thick, rock-hard member in Genie Montesano's practiced grip, and not Tucker's flaccid excuse for a manhood. Oh, that must be worth quite the pretty penny too, eh, Brad? Says Tucker. It is indeed, Tuck. Hard to put a price on it, of course, but our sources estimate these hand paintings could be worth anywhere in excess of three million dollars apiece. Woo-wee! Genie whistles down the line, piercing Brad's eardrums. So, is that why the army are there, Brad? She continues. Looks like there's quite a lot of action behind you. Brad turns to observe the scene unfolding, then pivots back to camera. Right again, sweet Jean. They rolled into town about half an hour ago. Must be the tensions in the Argentine White House are continuing to ramp up. So, yes, Jeannie, you can find all the action you could ever want down here. God, you are such a shameless flirt, he thinks. As you'll be well aware, such an historically and culturally important site is protected by law. Look, but don't touch. That's the rule here, a rule which one elderly pensioner is in the process of breaking. What is she doing, Brad? Well, it's hard to say exactly, Tucker. But from what the Channel 5 news team can tell, it would appear that the lady in question, whose identity remains a mystery, 
snuck into the caves yesterday morning before they officially opened to the public. When the site opened at 10 a.m. Argentina time, the morning's first tour group arrived at the famous hand paintings to find the old woman pressed up against them, spray paint can in hand, ready to vandalize one of the world's oldest and most valuable human artifacts. Brad laces this last sentence with as much melodrama as he can muster, and notes with satisfaction the gasps his words elicit, not only from Jeannie and Tucker, but from the Argentine locals gathering around him. My goodness, Brad, that sounds serious, fawns Jeannie, definitely flirting back, definitely wanting a piece of him. Jesus, what I would do to that woman, he thinks. Well, that's because it is, Jeannie. Very serious indeed. Highly illegal and morally abhorrent. More great word choice. The woman has refused to leave, despite the pleas of the authorities. As it stands, we're led to believe that the cave paintings remain intact, which is the only reason the police and now the army have not arrested or removed the old woman by force. You see, they cannot get to her without risking her defiling the hand paintings before they can put her in cuffs. So far, Jeannie, it's a stalemate. Well, sighs Tucker. Thanks, Brad. Do keep us updated. Then, to his co-host, Isn't that something, Jeannie? A stalemate between an old woman and the Argentinian army, and all over... What was it again? Cave paintings, Taka. Handprints painted on a wall. Oh, I wonder, if we left our handprints on the Channel 5 studio wall, would someone be fighting over them in a thousand years? <laughs> Jeannie's affected laughter ricochets down the line at Brad. Off air, he cringes and yanks his earpiece out. As he walks off in search of a seat in the shade and a second piece goes sour, he imagines Jeannie's handprints on his back, his buttocks, his thighs. He puts the Pisco Sour idea on the back burner. It can wait until after he masturbates, he decides, and strolls off toward his trailer. The old lady reached Estancia Casa de Piedra around 10pm, a horse ranch turned rest stop for those lone and weary travellers who wander Patagonia, looking for and sometimes finding what they seek. The ranch was built atop a bluff, from where the land declined lazily toward a thin river, which the government had designated Rio Iker, but which the locals called Rio Blanco, a throwback to days when white clay was washed from the backs of hands in that slowly rolling stream. The rest of the lodgers at Estancia Casa de Piedra were in their twenties, there because life had yet to demand their weariness, or, just maybe, there because they had inexplicably found the secret to sustained transience. The old women nodded politely to them as they turned their heads from the campfire, their eyes betraying nocturnal indulgences. She moved to the kitchen, where she found the ingredients to make herself a choripan, no butter, no sauce, just the fat and oil of the chorizo against the soft white dough of the bread roll. She drank a glass of milk, splashed her face in the sink, 
and refilled her canteen. Just then, a young boy, younger than the rest of the travellers, maybe only as old as twelve or thirteen but just as drunk, came staggering through the hallway from the bathrooms out back. When he saw the old woman with her eyes shimmering and her face freshly lacquered with water, he wobbled to a stop. Swaying, he observed her, then hiccuped and seemed to remember himself. Hola, abuelita. Bienvenido a la casa de piedra, donde la piedra está fuerte y la casa es amable. <laughs> he giggled to himself and hiccuped again. <laughs> muy, muy amable. <laughs> Necesitas una, una cama, abuelita? The old woman smiled at the youth's uncouthness and nodded her head. She told him that, yes, she could use a place to rest her head for the night. Accordingly, the boy pirouetted and lumbered off down another hall, calling back over his shoulder, Bien, bien, bien. Una momento, por favor. But when the boy eventually returned, bedroom key, bedroll and blankets in hand, he discovered the old woman was nowhere to be found. There were crumbs on the work surface and an empty glass by the sink, its insides slick with white. But no old woman, no granny, no abuelita. The boy thought about this for a moment, then shook his head. Too much vino tinto, he surmised, and abandoned his duties as night watchman once more for the comfort of fire and the company of strangers. If only he had looked beyond the reach of the flames, he might have seen a shadow on the edge of light, diminishing as it set off east to meet the coming sun. When the sun did rise, several hours later, the first thing it saw across all the stretches of land and sea was an old woman, waving merrily as she walked. Tall stick in hand, she seemed infinitely weary, and yet still full of gladness all the same to see the earth star appear over her horizon as the earth spun quietly through the void of space. The old woman walked along the rim of a great flat mesa, split in twain by a meandering river, the offspring of a giant glacier the sun had thawed in primeval times. At a depression in the canyon's mountainsides, she began a careful descent to the still cool bowels of that land, terse shrubbery and loose, dust-dry rockfall hazarding her journey. Across the river, with her skirts tied around her knees, for the first time since leaving the horse ranch, the woman took a rest, her back propped against a boulder, her legs akimbo. She closed her eyes, but still through them she could see a faint bisection of light and dark, between the shade of the canyon and the hard line of sunlight as the rays stretched themselves toward the plain, the river, the caves and her. As the sun rose and warmth slowly enveloped her, she kept her eyes closed and listened to the sounds of morning. The canyon was vast, and she'd listened to its vastness, its vacuum an acoustic safeguard against trespassers. She listened to the scuttle of lizards who, from their nightly hunt, came out from under rock and bush to recharge their bloods in the light of day. She listened to the chuckle of water 
gurgling along, bringing news of upland downstream. She listened to a butterfly clapping the air between its satin, granular wings, and she listened with the slightest jump to the caw of a vulture, perhaps frustrated to fix her in its gaze and find her very much still alive. And the old woman listened more intently. She listened to the cracking, grumbling grind of a prehistoric glacier, carving canyon from mantle. She listened to the liberated sighs of the caves as they were freed from that great frozen grip and began in time to shelter life. She listened to the hammering of bone hammers on flint chisels and the work songs of the ancient dwellers as they prized their precious pigments free from the rock. And she listened to the reverent procession of quiet hunter-gatherers and early farmers as young men and women having made their first kill of the hunt, were brought to the home of the gods. There, they too, like their parents and grandparents before them, were to tether their hands to the clay from which they and their prey were moulded, to the rock eternal, so that they might pass on their wisdom to those still to come. The old woman opened her eyes. The early morning was bright and still, the riverbank on which she reclined, empty of people, and yet, at once, full of them. She and they separated only by time, only by a handprint. The old lady drank deeply from the river, tasting the earthy powder of a hundred painted hands. She straightened herself and breathed in the light. Then, turning on her heels, she made directly for the entrance of La Cueva de los Manos. Welcome back to Channel 5 News at 6. I'm your host, Tucker Hall. And I'm Jean Montesano. Our top stories tonight. Bombing of the East continues as Russia sets its sights on Poland and Romania in what some are calling the return of the Soviets. The state of Florida sets precedent for the rest of the country by banning gay propaganda from schools. A high school shooter is gunned down by his teacher. The last polar bear on earth dies in a wildfire and... In my favorite story of the day, our own Jeannie Montesano's pet cat Snooky becomes a local news hero in a skit involving a pizza parlor and an armed robber. <laughs> That's right, sucker. And I can't wait to get to that one. But first, our main story of the night. At the site of the world's oldest surviving human artwork, one elderly woman threatens to destroy an entire connection to the past by vandalizing the cave paintings. As of yet, we don't know why. But what we do know is that the world will not stand idly by and watch this stupid cow ruin our history. It's ours, damn it. It's ours. Wow, Janie, Janie, that's some strong language. Apologies to any viewers affected by that. Oh, jeez. 
you're right, Zuck. Uh, yeah, listen, sorry, folks. I'm real sorry, okay? I'm just, I'm mad about this, you know? Who does she think she is? What gives her the right? Well, that's a good question, Jeannie. Viewers, we've been following this story since it broke out yesterday in a rash of protests all around the world's major cities. For those of you new to the situation, Argentina's Patagonia region is home to a cave called Cueva de los Menos. In that cave are almost 1,000 individual handprints painted by the Indians who first inhabited the region and worth in excess of $2.9 billion. Today, the site is protected both by President Cordoba's government and UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization. Early yesterday morning, an old woman snuck her way illegally onto the site and has been there since, holding the paintings hostage. Tucker's face is a picture. Grim and grey, with dark bags under his eyes, he looks more like a wartime correspondent than a news anchor on a set complete with makeup artists. His co host, Jeannie, on the other hand, looks positively radiant. She affects heartbreak for the purposes of the segment, but can barely conceal her glee at some off-camera event. Around her neck, she wears a delicate necklace, its big, brash, ruby pendant nestled in the cleave of two surgically enhanced breasts. She had not been wearing it this morning, but had found it in a velvet-lined box in her dressing room at lunch, with a note reading, Something to show off my girls, Brad. It had been a bold move, and one which Brad had had to orchestrate from afar. Now, watching his colleague on the monitor from southern Argentina, Brad was more than pleased to see that his gamble had paid off. He slides a hand down his pants, fumbling with the contents of his sweaty boxer shorts, and then tunes back in to Jeannie Montesano's impassioned northeastern tones. Is nothing sacred anymore, Tuck? Tucker Hall looks ready to cry. Can Jeannie really be asking him that question after all she's put him through since the morning show? Nevertheless, a grin peels across his face, his facial muscles working on autopilot. Well, I guess not, Jean. We'll be going live to our correspondent, Brad, who's outside the Cave of Hands as we speak. But before that, we'd like to welcome Professor... Oh, very fancy. Yes, very fancy indeed, Jean. We'd like to welcome Professor Sarah Everhart to join us, alongside best-selling spiritual author J.Pax Sandeep. Welcome both. On a large screen to the anchor's left, two faces appear in slightly juddery 720p. One is a heavyset woman with a shaved head and a pair of large, square spectacles perched on the bridge of her nose. The glass of the glasses magnifies her eyes to twice the size they should be. The other figure is a man, about medium build, reclining in an easy chair, wearing a cotton trilby and a pair of dark sunglasses, despite the fact he's inside. The female panellist carries a severe expression, brows furrowed, eyes narrowed, hands clasped tightly in front of her. The male panellist lights what is quite obviously a joint to all but the least observant, or indeed most naive, of viewers. Tucker speaks first. Thanks for joining us, folks. Now, 
Professor Everhart, you are a professor of... Yes, hello. Uh, I'm the... I'm a professor of archaeology at the, the University of Maryland. <laughs> Maryland? Scoffs Tucker. Into his earpiece, he asks, Guys, we couldn't have found someone from Berkeley, UCL, MIT? Are you serious? Jeannie coughs to cover up her co-host's lapse in professionalism. Oh, <clears throat> uh, yeah, the interest thing, and archaeology. What's that the study of? Professor Seda Everhart looks more than a little stunned. Well, it's, uh, well, it's the study of human history through the, uh, the study of human, of the materials left behind by humans. The Channel 5 news team stare blankly at the archaeologist's feed. I dig up skeletons and weapons and stuff, says Professor Everhart with a sigh. Oh, right, sure. Like Indiana Jones. Yeah, you sure said so. I get you now. I get you. Jeannie nods as enthusiastically as she can. Tucker doesn't even attempt to hide his boredom. A moment later, though, his face lights up. JPEG! squeals Jeannie. It's so good to have you here, darling. Thank you for coming. Jaypak Sandeep nods coolly, gives a little smile, and sucks on his spliff. Jaypak joins Tucker. I've read every one of your books. Oh, and I, chips in Jeannie. I just wanted to say, what an enlightening journey you've taken us on. I think I can speak for both Jeannie and the rest of the crew when I say that Ten Laws for Modern Life changed our lives for the better. Tucker looks directly into the camera and with a wry smile says, Rule number eight, if a liberal tries to wake you up, put them straight to sleep. <laughs> Everyone on the panel laughs, except the professor. It appears at first that her video has frozen, but then she blinks and it is clear that only her pained expression is unmoving. So, continues Jeannie, what do you think about this whole handprint cave painting thing, Professor Everhart? The professor gives herself a little shake. Yes, uh, well, it's certainly gotten a little out of hand, I think. Of course, I don't actually believe that... <laughs> Raucous laughter erupts from Jeannie and Tucker. Oh, <laughs> good one. Good pun. That's funny, Prof. And JPEG, your thoughts? The professor is too stunned to protest. The small sounds of her attempts to continue talking are quickly quashed by Sandeep's voice. It is soft and well-spoken, yet at the same time deep and resonant. The professor makes a fine joke, but in truth, the situation could not be further in hand. I don't know if you know this, Tucker, Jeannie, but the way that our energies work is very reliant on the world around us. If you've ever lived in a house populated with spirits, for example, you'll know that the spirits don't come with you when you leave. It's the same for these paintings and the cave they're in. They've been around for, what, a thousand years? Tucker and Jean nod approvingly, but the professor chimes in. Actually, according to radiocarbon dating, the youngest of the handprints is 1,300 years old, whilst the oldest may be as ancient as 9,300 years old, almost 10,000 years. 
silence falls in the newsroom until JPAC eventually sighs. As I was saying, these paintings have been around for at least a thousand years. That means that our ancestors, the people who lived back then in Argentina, who could have been your great-granddad, Tucker, or mine, think about it. These people chose to preserve themselves in a series of intricate, one-off paintings. Spiritually, these people are still very much alive in the paintings in that cave. Unless, of course, this dumb bitch you're talking about defaces the art. <laughs> Ginny laughs. Tucker stifles a chuckle. Oh, careful now, Mr. Sandeep. We've got to watch our language on Channel 5. J-Pak Sandeep raises a hand in feigned apology. Professor Everhart raises a hand to catch her host's attention. Do you want to say something, Professor? Uh, yes, please. Well, go ahead. Well, uh, Mr. JPEG, uh, JPEG, my apologies, Mr. JPEG, I appreciate what you're trying to say here, but actually, we, uh, we don't really have any concrete evidence to tell us why the Paleo-Indian peoples of the Pinturas River Canyon stenciled their hands on the cave wall like that. It might have been to preserve their m memory, yes, but actually many of us in the archaeological community believe it has much more to do with hunting rituals and... and so you're saying you don't really know, interrupts Jeannie. Well, we can make fairly astute guesses based on the material evidence but and... you I don't know for sure why the paintings were made. Well, no. But JPEG, you seem to have an answer, right, JPEG? JPEG nods. So, really, what can you tell us about these paintings, Miss Everhart? Professor Everhart. Yeah, sure, Professor Everhart. Everhart takes a long, patient breath. <sighs> what we do know is that these hand paintings were not made all at once. In fact, they were added to, generation after generation, for almost 8,000 years. I've been to Cueva de los Manos, and in some parts of the cave, the hands are so numerous, they actually overlap and obscure many of the other older hands around them. They have become a sort of palimpsest of... Uh, a pally-what now? Tucker laughs. A, uh, a, a, a palimpsest? A, a single thing made up of many different layers. Well, the cave paintings, they were an ongoing, interactive, artistic installation for, for many thousands of years, longer than we modern humans have called them important and protected and ancient history. Yeah, okay, <laughs> sneers Tucker. And JPEG, what do you make of this theory? <laughs> I'm afraid to say, I think it's entirely unfounded. Jeannie whistles, fingering her ruby necklace, and shoots a glance at Tucker. Wow, she says, fighting words. I'm, uh, I, I, I'm so sorry to interject, stutters the archaeologist, but Argentinian archaeologist Carlos Gradan and his team spent... Thirty years studying the art in Cueva de los Manos. The fragments of hollowed bone pipes used to blow the paint onto the wall 
along with the paintings themselves, have been both carbon dated and stratigraphically dated to, to, to within a, a few years' accuracy. I mean, well, these hold are... your horses there, Sarah, quips JPAC. You're throwing a lot of big words around here, hoping that some will stick. What you're really saying is that you used some hokey science experiment and got a bunch of random dates from the paintings. Now you're saying that they must have been painted in a, what was it, 8,000-year window? That's a convenient way to explain a series of miscalculations. Well, that's not at all. Professor, Professor, I mean no disrespect here, but are you seriously suggesting that this cave art isn't important? See, what this woman is doing down there puts at risk the spiritual survival of our ancestors. Do you really think that this is what the world needs right now? I think she maybe just wants to add her hand to a number of other... Professor, you have the best of intentions, I'm sure. J-Park raises his voice ever so slightly. But then, in fact, you said you'd been down to see this Spanish cave too. Who's to say you haven't already defiled the cave? Basically, the sacred burial ground for maybe a million people, like this lady intends to. Who's to say you didn't inspire her? Hell, who's to say you didn't give her the directions and basically put the can of spray paint in a damn hand? The author takes another long drag on his joint and settles his face into a serious frown, his eyes still hidden behind the glasses. The professor looks shocked. Her mouth hangs open, her spectacles tilting precariously on the end of her nose. After a beat, News anchor Tucker Hall cuts the tension. Well, things really are heating up here in the studio and all around the world. Our ancestors' legacy hangs in the balance. And is this old vandal the first or the latest in a long line of disgruntled single women to mark the caves with their graffiti? We'll be back with the answers to these questions later, but right now... We've just received word from our man on the ground. Brad, what is happening? Yes, thanks, Tucker. Just a moment ago, the stalemate here outside La Cueva de los Manos came to an abrupt end, following a shouting match between a soldier over there at the barricade and a small group of civilian militiamen. The masses who had been gathering here this past day suddenly stormed the army lines. The soldiers were caught off guard, and the barricade was easily overrun. The civilians entered the main cave system just before our cameras started rolling a moment ago. As you can see, there's still a lot of noise and confusion here, and, uh... Jesus, Brad, was that gunfire? Oh my god, Brad! Honey, are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay, Jeannie. That was indeed gunfire, huh? It came from within the cave. I guess they must have got... They must have got the old woman. It was almost exactly the same feeling she'd got the day her husband Fredo had passed over. The old woman stood in front of an ancient tapestry of interwoven hands, claiming the rock face as if reaching for the gods, and her face grew wet with tears. 
though she wept openly, her lips, thin and purplish, were pulled into a smile that spoke of wisdom and a life well lived. She wore her shawl loosely about her shoulders and clasped her own hands in front of her as if in prayer. The wall of hand paintings was not really a wall at all. No single section of the caves had been dedicated solely to hands, and throughout the passageways on her way to this spot, the lady had passed looping, sprawling, dancing networks of fingers, thumbs and palms. Yet, in the deepest part of the cave, lit by a single wide shaft of sunlight entering through a slit in the ceiling, there was one shelf of rock absolutely covered in the things. The shelf jutted out in a slight bulge about head height, sat above a series of flat landings, each slightly more elevated than the last. Though trampled by thousands of feet over the ages, worn smooth beneath bared skin, leather soles and the plastic sneakers of the moment, the stair-like formation was evidently natural. It gave the rocky shelf of outlined hands a degree more gravity. The shelf became an altar for the humans come to worship, raised toward whichever heaven one imagined above the clouds. The old woman observed the geology and could not help but grin. It filled her with a warmth and security which she'd known it would, yet had at times of weakness feared it might not. Of course this is where we are to place our hands, she thought. If there is a more perfect place in all this land to paint the evidence of oneself before the eyes of the earth, then I do not know it. If such a place exists, it is surely an illusion. The rock of Cueva de los Manos was a dusty orange colour. The hands, outlined by the pigment of bone pipes, were sketched in white, black and red, and there were hundreds of them, more than the old woman could fit into view at once. One or two here and there were placed out of reach of the others, but the majority of the hands overlapped so numerously as to form a sea of splayed fingers, a fisherman's net of ancient dead digits, filled to brimming, she imagined, with fish from the spirit world, all blue and silvery and wriggling and strange. The hand paintings were a community spanning millennia, a community whose emphasis was on the shared experience, not the individual, as was evidenced by the fact that the prehistoric painters had highlighted the space around the hands, and not the hands themselves. They were outlines, not prints. They said, I am not I, I am they, and they exist only in the context of rock, grass, sky and sea. The old woman stood studying the cave paintings, the same way she had studied their picture in her book every day since Fredo had died. Only now she could feel their radiance. Only now she could hear the weight of history and time and human inheritance fill the cavern. Only now she could see just how deep the story of the hands truly went. After a long, slow while, the woman finally moved. Her old bones creaked and cracked as she stretched, and those tiny explosive sounds rippled through the cavern like firecrackers. She dropped her bag to the ground, and from it, 
took the can of red spray paint she'd bought from the store in Buenos Aires, and then, with ancient limbs, she climbed the three or four landings between the wall and her. She shook, her hands trembling, her stomach in knots. She was not concerned about what she knew she must do, but she was aware of its magnitude. She was aware, as she imagined every person, homo sapien or neanderthal, had been, who had come to this place in silence and reverence and asked the world to remember them, who asked the caves to take them and hold them and bind them with all the others who had come before. The old woman brought her hand, her left hand, before her eyes. She twisted it this way and that, seeing it as if seeing it for the first time. She saw so many lines and creases, she imagined her palm as the ocean floor, its skin, the sand, buffeted and brushed by the ceaseless waves of her years. She noticed her calluses from a lifetime of gardening and contemplated the stories they contained. She noted where the skin of her hands was dry and where it was oily, where smoothness reigned and where coarseness began. And she spied the spaces between these two worlds, like those sub-Saharan plains which appear arid, but which on closer inspection show the telltale signs of life-giving water just below the desert surface. And then, with a laugh, <laughs> the likes of which that sacred site had not heard in a thousand years, the old woman suddenly realised that none of those details would be remembered here. Her fingerprints, her love lines, her child lines and her death, her calluses, her flaky knuckles, nor the oil of her palms, None of it would be preserved by the paint. Only the rough shape of her hand would remain. Just the outline. A reminder to all those who beheld it that life flows not only within, but without. Still shaking her head with the easy happiness of acknowledging one's own helplessness, the old woman raised her hand to the wall. And in a small space between the overlap of six other hands, pressed it flat to the cold rock and closed her eyes. The vision took hold immediately. Practiced in the gentle art of meditation, knowing not to resist but to accept change, the old woman allowed her mind to be swept along in the river of memory suddenly streaming through the caves. As she did so, she knew instinctively that it was the same ethereal river that every individual whose handprint decorated those walls had swum in. More than that, though, she also knew, as had they, that she was floating there with them, right now, in the eternal now that is past, present and future, in the now in which all life has unfolded and ever will unfold. The now which is melancholy, for only in melancholy are you wholly connected to the overwhelming continuity of emotion and experience. A now which is the quiet acceptance of mortality and the brilliance of the unbridled moment, the likes of which is glimpsed most frequently at dawn and in baying at the moon, in the first sit of a cold beer under a hard sun, or in the stillness after sex. 
Enveloped in the vision, the old woman listened, and there heard a music like none she had heard before. Skin-taut drums hammered out a lullaby rhythm, whilst a bone flute whistled overhead, its wide arc casting forth notes returned in harmony by a never-ending chorus of echoes, bouncing through the tendrilous tunnels of those caves. And throughout, two voices, one in the throat, tremulous and dark, the other high in the head, feathery, white, stretching toward the boundary of sound. And with the music came figures. Ancient men and women clad in loincloths, bearskins, the giant scaled coats of megafauna now gone from the air, feathers of every colour and length, skull masks with horns or jaws boasting teeth like anvils and pestles. Then others, strangers still, nude but genetically modified to resemble impossible animals, or taller and slenderer than any human should be, with bulbous heads and a multitude of eyes. On they came, some alone, some in procession, and each in turn added the outline of their hand to the wall, basking in the feeling of being a part of something greater than themselves. The feeling that no matter how strange or hard or empty the world around them felt, that there had always been others born of that same world, and that there always would be. With her heart gripped in the warm embrace of those lives, the old woman finally opened her eyes, knowing that what she had come to do was indeed the right thing to do. She did not know that she had stood there with her hand to the cave wall for days on end, unblinking, not eating, barely breathing, silent to the reprimands of tourists, tour guides and soldiers. In fact, to her, it had felt more like living many, many years, good and long as the dog days of summer, floating down a river of time. Abuelita, deja la lata y aleate de las pinturas. The voice came from immediately behind her, and yet from miles away. It was part of some other world, she felt. Part of some people determined to resist a tide one cannot resist. No te volveré a preguntar. Tenemos ordenes de proteger esta cueva por todos los medios necesarios. Te disparare. Repito, disparare a matar. The old woman, barely listening to the man's barking anyway, did not speak his language. But it did not matter. She knew why he was angry. She was well aware that the hand paintings of Cueva de los Manos had remained untouched for over a thousand years. She knew that modern society had become detached, self-important, confused enough to view the oldest parts of its history as complete rather than ongoing, as somehow finished with and thus sacred, somehow to be treasured. She knew all too well that the commercial potential of sites like these was far more important to the governments of her world than their function as a free artistic space for human beings to use and thus continue a tradition older than any other. 
she shook her head, pulling free of the pity and sadness she felt for a world full of people like that. She took up her can of paint and shook it. No lo hagas, abuelita! No lo hagas! The old woman made her hands pressure on the rock face firm and brought the nozzle of the can level with her knuckles, old and grizzled and showing through paper-thin skin. Detener! screamed the man, but the woman no longer heard him. All around her was that haunting, primal music of her ancestors. All around her were the waters of the world. All around her, floating too, their eyes at once trained on her and on the clear blue sky simmering above the clouds, were all those whose hands her hand now touched. All around her was the great colourless everything that was and is and shall be. The old lady depressed the nozzle of the can. A rifle snarled, then another and another. Against the back of an ancient hand sprayed the red of paint, pigment, blood. And then there was silence. Smoke from the civilians' muzzles filled the small space of the cave, causing them to squint their watering eyes whilst the sound of their gunfire explored the winding passageways. The leader of the mob, who had fired first, felt suddenly a heaviness in his heart. It was all he could do to keep from crying. Not that he would have been ashamed to in front of the others, only now he realised he did not want them to feel as bad as he did. Forcing himself to look, he strained to see through the settling dust and cordite. When the air finally cleared, what the rifleman saw made his hairs stand on end. From the soles of his feet to the peaks of his ears, a shiver ran through him, electric and enlightening. Where the old woman's limp, bullet-ridden body should have been, lay only a light blue shawl, splattered now in red. The old lady was nowhere to be seen. All that remained of her was the outline of a hand, sprayed in pigment on the shelf of a rock wall, in a cave, in a canyon, carved by an ancient glacier, melted by a sun some four and a half billion years old. Vermilion as clay, the paint still glistened freshly wet. And yet, where its fingers overlapped those of other hands, so too did the fingers of other hands overlap it. As if, thought the militiaman, it had been there all along. Thank you for listening to this month's Story from the Hearth. There's a lot to unpack in that story, so I think maybe it might be best if I leave you to sort of draw your own conclusions. I really hope you enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun writing it. 
but it's also a story which is quite close to my heart, I think, in the sense that it deals with... I think it's I think it's very personal. It deals a lot with the way that I see the world, the way that I see time, the way that I see history, the way that I see our human interaction with the world around us. I was, of course, inspired by a set of beautiful pictures of the hand outlines painted on the walls of Cueva de los Manos, but you can also find the exact same images around the world in a whole bunch of different places. There are caves in France and in Spain, there are caves in Indonesia. I don't doubt that there are places uh, in indigenous areas um, in North America, places in Australia, places in Japan, uh, places in Russia, in, in other parts of Europe, in Africa, where you can find these hand outlines. Some, sometimes you do find them to be hand prints, the actual kind of drawings of, of hands, but more often than not, it's these hand outlines, it's, it's these uh, sort of pigment-blown um, graffiti art of hands across thousands of different cultures, each of which had no means of communicating with each other at the time. I find that absolutely fascinating, that despite their independence, that they should want to mark their existence on the world in the same way by leaving the print of their hand. I just, it, it was inspiring to me. It was super, super inspiring to me. So I decided to write about it. And at the same time, I wanted to incorporate kind of how ridiculous the modern world is in terms of what gets people really annoyed compared to what should get people really annoyed, right? So... That, that's that's the story of of uh, of La Cueva de los Manos and and the art of floating. Um, I'll pop some pictures up on Twitter um, and Instagram, perhaps, but most specifically on on Patreon uh, for you to go and look at and kind of get a bit of background context for uh, for this story. If you liked what you heard, please do subscribe and share this podcast with friends family, and anyone else you know who could use just a half hour's respite from the chaotic energies of the everyday. You can also now rate podcasts on Spotify, so if you're listening to it there, why not drop us a few stars? If you wish to support the podcast, please head to my Patreon by hitting the link in the description down below or by heading to patreon.com forward slash stories from the hearth podcast. Similarly, you can check out the podcast's Instagram, Twitter, website and email address via the links below. The website's brand new by the way so please do go check it out, I'm really chuffed with how it came out. Drop me a message any way you like, um, if there's a specific genre you'd like to hear a story from, if you want to know more about the podcast or if you'd like to get involved with it, my inbox is always open. Story episodes are released on the last Sunday of every month and additional episodes in the Wandering Bard historical mini-series will pop up from time to time when I've got time. Until next we meet around the fire, I've been Callum Bannerman, and you've been listening to Stories from the Heart.